Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. You know the story well, I'm sure. His name was My God is King, and her name was Delight. Elimelech and his beautiful bride Naomi had two young sons, and there was a famine in the land of Judah, and so they went east. They went across the Jordan River into Moabite territory with their sons Malon and Kilian. And then Elimelech died. He left Naomi with two healthy sons to take care of her. They married. But then about 10 years later, they both died. We don't know from what, but left two widows along with Naomi, the gazelle, Orpah, and the friend, Ruth. Well, Naomi heard that the famine in Judah was finished that the land was replenished. And she decided to relieve the other widows of their burden and responsibility for her, that they could marry and carry on with their lives there in Moab. And she would return home, probably destined to a life of poverty and probably die early there. And as she left, Orpah and Ruth followed her. And she stopped and she said, no, you go back. I am too old. I can't have any more sons for you to marry. So you go back to your home. You go back to your gods, and I am going to go to Judah. And they both insisted. They continued to follow her, and then she stopped again, and she said, no, you must go back. Consider yourselves and your future. And Orpah grabbed her around the neck and she cried and she departed and she went back. But you know the story. Ruth said no, said, don't beg me to leave you. Don't entreat me to keep from following you. For you see, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die, and I'll be buried there too. And may the Lord do all the more to me if anything short of death should cause us to depart from each other. And so they headed out to to Judah into the barley harvest, passing through the fields of gold. And they came to Bethlehem. And Ruth asked her mother-in-law then for permission to go into the fields and to go into the unharvested edges and to glean that which was left over. And her mother gave her permission, and she did so. And she went from one field to the other, and then she came to the field of the man who was fast, the fleet-minded one, Boaz. That's what his name means. Elimelech's kinsman redeemer. And he asked his servants, what is this woman doing in the fields? And they told her, and he had already heard about her, He'd heard about her reputation for her fidelity, for her loyalty to her mother-in-law, and he took pity on her. 
And he not only gave her permission to glean, but he was generous. He went beyond that. He fed her roasted grain and water, and he protected her. And he went beyond the law of Leviticus, and he told his servants this thing. Let her glean even among the sheaves, and don't insult her. Also, you shall purposely, intentionally pull out for her some grain from the bundles, and and leave it there in the unharvested edges so that she may glean, and don't rebuke her. It's one of the all-time great love stories, and it fits right into that redemptive story of the scarlet thread that we are talking about on Sunday evening. You know, I never really looked at these words this way when I heard the song from the 70s by Gordon Matthew Thomas Sumner, but it fits. You don't know him by that name. You know him as Sting. You'll remember me when the west wind moves upon the fields of barley. You'll forget the sun and his jealous sky as we walk in fields of gold. So she took her love for to gaze a while upon the fields of barley. In his arms she fell and her hair came down among the fields of gold. Will you stay with me? Will you be my love upon the fields of barley? We'll forget the sun and his jealous sky, and we'll lie in fields of gold. Many years passed since those summer days among the fields of barley. See the children run as the sun goes down among the fields of gold. One of the great love stories, and yes, they fell in love and they married and they had a son, Obed. They may have had other children, we don't know. But in that scarlet thread of redemptive history, we know they had a grandson by the name of Jesse who had eight sons and at least two daughters. And the youngest of those was King David. And his city was the city of Bethlehem. You know, this was following the letter of the law, but it was also following the spirit of the law. The letter of the law came from Leviticus, help the poor. Leviticus 23, 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field. You are to leave unharvested edges. You're not to glean all of that from the middle, but allow some on the edges. You are to leave them for the needy and for the alien, even for the Moabites. For you see, I am the Lord your God. That's the letter of the law. The spirit of the law was proclaimed by David's son, a descendant of Ruth. From Proverbs, he says, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. The spirit of the law is to be gracious in giving. The spirit of the law is to be gracious in giving because when we give to the poor, to the needy, we are giving to the Lord. You know, in the Old Testament, there are many, many words for the poor, for the distressed, for the needy. One means to be weak and lowly. There are about nine words. I'm not going to go through all of them this morning. One means to be a beggar, to be desperately poor of the lowest class. Another means to be destitute and completely impoverished. And one describes the affliction that the poor and lowly go through. And in the Psalms especially, the word 
poor and needy are repeated many, many times. The general principle here is this. You know, the Jewish faith was not the only but the main monotheistic faith of that day. It was a rarity. Of course, everybody was polytheistic almost. But there was one difference even between the Jews and a few Egyptians who practiced monotheism, and that was that it was ethical monotheism. Well, what does that mean? You see, it made Israel unique. God called his people not only to worship him, but to take care of his people. You see, the law was designed for social responsibility, to take care of the poor and to prevent poverty in the community. God said, I am the champion of the poor and the needy. I will raise them up and I will deliver them. And when the prophets came later in the time of the corruption of the kings, they preached against dishonesty and oppression by the rich and the powerful. The key texts are found all through Scripture, though, not just in the latter part of the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. In the Torah, we find exhortation after command in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus to help and keep, and, and keep the poor. In wisdom literature, especially in Psalms and Proverbs, and in the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Amos, time and time again, they said, God wants you to take care of the poor and the needy. But what's interesting about it Specific examples of the poor are pretty rare in the Old Testament because, you see, their laws and their social system, in fact, did take care of the poor until the latter part of the divided kingdom when the rich kings and the priests then began to oppress them as a class. One of the few examples we find in 2 Kings, you remember the four beggars, the four leprous beggars outside the city of Samaria when King, King Ben-Hadad of Syria was besieging the city. And remember what they did. They went to the camp of Ben-Hadad and they found that it had been, that they had all fled and they returned to Samaria and told the people about the bounty that was in their camp. What about the specific principles from the Old Testament that apply for the poor and the needy? And I think there, I see about four principles. The first is the harvest principle. And it is what we have already talked about. It is to leave in the unharvested edges an opportunity for the poor to come in and to glean for their support. Another passage, not Leviticus 23, but Leviticus 19, expands on it and says this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you, you shall not strip your vineyard bear, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for whom? For the poor. For the sojourner, for the alien, like the Moabitess. For you see, I am the Lord your God. There's a second principle, and it's the sabbatical principle, the sabbatic principle, and the jubilee principle, of course, from Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 15, and again Leviticus 25. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant remission of the debts. This is a manner of remission that you shall exact. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor, and he shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother, because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. Remission, you see, was the doorway to freedom. 
there will be no poor among you. That is not a prophecy. That was a command. Because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. There will be no no poor among you since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. If there is a poor man with you, you shall not harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Don't close your hand from your poor brother. No, you shall freely open your hand to him and you shall give generously to lend to him sufficiently for his need and whatever he asks. So there's not only the harvest principle, there is the sabbatical principle of open-handedness. There's also the delivery principle that comes mainly from the wisdom literature of Psalms and Proverbs. There are at least 20 references to the poor and needy there where God says, speaks about the devastation of the poor. Because of the de- devastation of the poor, because of the groaning of the needy, now I... I who am your Lord will arise, and I say to you, I will set him in safety for which he longs. Again in Psalm 72, he speaks as judge. For God is the judge who will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He shall spare the poor and the needy and shall save the souls of those who are needy. So there's a harvest principle, there is the sabbatic principle, there's the delivery principle, and then there's finally the judgment principle, especially in prophetic literature. Condemning the abuse of the poor and the needy, Ezekiel says, the people of the land have practiced oppression. They've committed robbery, thievery, and they have wronged the poor and needy and have oppressed the sojourner, the alien, even like the Moabitess, you see without justice. And then we come to the New Testament. There are only a couple of words in the New Testament that describe this situation. One means to be poor, to be destitute, lacking, helpless, completely needy. In fact, the root word comes from to fall down. Those who are fallen. It's the most common word in the New Testament for the poor. Jesus speaks about it on the outskirts of Nazareth when he proclaims that he has been called and he fulfills the words of Isaiah. He says, the Lord and his spirit have done what? They've anointed me. They've anointed me to preach the gospel to whom? To the poor. In the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the what? The poor. And I know there it says the poor in spirit, but in Luke's gospel, He expands it to the poor who are simply the needy. In his command to the rich young ruler, he uses this word when he says, go and sell all that you have. You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and do what? Give to the poor. There are a couple of good examples in the New Testament of the way this concept is used. Jesus tells the parable of Lazarus, the poor man and the rich man. And later then, Peter healed the poor lame man at the gate called beautiful. This was a part of the New Testament gospel to help the poor. The other word is beggar. And the root word means to ask. It means to implore because you desire, you need something. And there are only two instances where it's used in the New Testament. One is on the outskirts of Jericho as Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem and he stops and he takes A moment. Everybody else tells the man to shut up. Don't bother the teacher. 
And you know who it was. It was blind Bartimaeus, the poor beggar. And Jesus loved him and had compassion on him, and he healed him of his blindness. And then Bartimaeus followed him along the way. The other is the man that was blind from birth, not far from Siloam's fountain, where Jesus took the clay and spit in it and put it on his eyes, and he took compassion on this poor blind man. And he said, go wash your eyes, and his, his sight was restored. I see about four principles in the New Testament concerning the poor and the needy. The first is the mercy principle. It's related to giving alms. The word for alms, in fact, comes from that Greek word which means mercy, eleos. And it was one of three righteous acts that were practiced by the Jews. We know that Jesus spoke about those in the Sermon on the Mount. That is, righteous act of prayer, the righteous act of fasting, and right in the middle of those, the righteous act of almsgiving. It was practiced by Jews as one of the three righteous acts, and then later by the apostolic church. They continued it. And also by the third of the Abrahamic faiths, even today, the Muslims. They practice it one of their five pillars of their faith. Almsgiving. Jesus exhorts his disciples to give. To give how? In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't give for recognition. So when you give to the poor, don't make the sound of a trumpet as you go through the streets, as many of those seeking glory do. Like the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. You see, they want to be honored by men for what they do. He said, but truly I say to you, they have their reward already in full. But when you give to the poor, when you give to the poor, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Keep it secret. And for your giving, your father who sees in secret will reward you also in secret. Don't seek reward when you give to the poor. And later, Paul reminds us that Jesus exhorted his disciples to do this regularly. He was, he was speaking to the elders of Ephesus at Miletus, and he reminded them, help the weak. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus when he said it is more what? Blessed to give than to receive. So there's a principle of giving the alms, giving to the poor. There's a principle of ministry also that he calls the church to today. And of course, that is in Matthew 25, when we give to the least of these his brethren, the sheep in his flock, the shepherd commands to minister to them. And he says to the sheep, you will be rewarded because when I was hungry, you did what? You gave to me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave to me something to drink. And when I was a stranger in the land, like the Moabites, you then invited me in. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to me. Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you have done it to one of the least, one of the poorest, one of the most destitute of these brothers of mine, you've done it to me. So there's the ministry principle. There's also the giving to the poor principle. There's the ge generosity principle. And that is that sharing pleases God. John the Baptist, at the beginning of his ministry, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees gathered around him, he said, the man who has two shirts should do what? He should share 
with him who has none, and he who has no food, he should be shared with likewise. The author of Hebrews tells us, and do not neglect doing good. Do not neglect doing good and sharing for such sacrifices please God. So there's a generosity principle, but there's also the compassion principle. This is putting love into action. Later, John, in his first epistle, speaks about love consistently from beginning to end and putting love into action. And in the third part of that epistle, the third chapter, he says this, if anyone has material possessions and he sees his brother in need but has no pity, no compassion on him, how in the world can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love in word and tongue only, but let's love with the actions and in truth. In other words, share with those that need. Now, what are the implications and the application of these eight principles from the Old and the New Testament? Well, the first is, it's pretty obvious. Garamel Street Baptist Church, our church, and every church in the kingdom of God has an obligation, and that is to help the dispossessed. James says, this is true religion. He begins by talking about the most of those dispossessed and distressed, the orphans and the widows who were vulnerable. And he said this, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself untarnished, unstained from the world. Jesus, again, said that we should give to the least of these his brethren. This means with our own members. It begins with our own members. You know, we're to bear one another's burdens in Galatians 6. But that's not just on Wednesday evening or whenever we do it. It's not just on Sunday morning when we speak the pastoral prayer. It's not only as important as it is to pray for those in distress, it must go beyond that to bear their burdens and their need. First John in that same chapter that I quoted a moment ago said that we're to give to brothers and sisters in need. We must take care of our own. You know, taking care of the community, the social responsibility to take care of the community for centuries and again then here in America even into modern times, rested with the responsibility of whom? With the church. To take care of the church's own community and then to take care of the community around the church. We also do so through special offerings in our denomination. Texas Baptists collect offerings on a regular, on an annual basis for the hungry. We have a collection for needy ministers to help them in their distress and old age. Gamble Street Baptist Church participates and cooperates with the Christian Community Association here, which gives help to those that need help. That began here at Gamble Street Baptist Church decades ago. We have here a benevolence offering where we help people, sojourners usually, often aliens, folks that are outside our community that are passing through town that need help. And we give them a little bit of help when we can and other needs that are brought to our attention. The, the church has a responsibility and an obligation to take care of not only its own, but its community. But we also have a personal obligation to do so. And it begins where? It begins by being good citizens, by obeying the authorities that are over us, and giving in systemic ways to take care of those in society. That is, 
not to avoid paying our taxes. By doing so, we support, I think, I hope, we support legitimate social welfare programs, and it's a moral obligation to do so. Some of you also give to nonprofit agencies to help the poor. I know, I understand that the tax laws have changed. I know that most of us can take the standard deduction and we don't have to list all of those contributions that we make to nonprofit organizations and our tithe and that sort of thing. But that should not stop us from fulfilling that obligation. We also give to the church benevolence offering to help others individually. We do that. And we give to individuals directly outside the church when we see the specific need. And that brings us to the question then of the difference between the poor and beggars. The poor and the panhandlers. The folks that are standing on the corners of the streets. And how do we deal with that? We have a personal obligation to help them too privately, individually. You know, the Bible doesn't distinguish between the poor and beggars. The Bible doesn't distinguish between those that are homeless and those that stand on the street and those that have a home and then they stand on the corner and beg. Jesus helped both. The disciples helped both. He helped and fed the poor, those who had homes, those that lived from hand to mouth from day to day and gathered with him on a hillside and had nothing to eat, the poor who had homes. But he also helped the homeless. He helped the beggars that were in need. You know, not long ago in Canada, they did a profile on panhandlers, on beggars on the streets. The average, the median age of the beggar on the street in Canada is about 38. Males, it's about 44. They, about three-fourths of them have some high school education. About two-thirds of them are homeless. Many of them have chronic health problems, about 70% of them. Many of them use substances to which they're addicted, yes. About 90% of them tobacco, about a fourth of them alcohol. Almost half of them, according to this survey, have had marijuana sometime in the past week. You see, we look at them and we see them as different and disobedient lawbreakers often. Their income is very low. At the most, they might make about $30 a day begging on the corner of the street. The average is about $300 a month. With a total income, with social support from the government, they may make about $600 a month in Canada, about $7,000 a year, where the poverty line is double that, $13,000. In America, general statistics say this of beggars. They spend about six hours a day on the corner begging, and most of them have been doing this for an average of about five years. 94% of them spend most of their money. This may surprise you. 94% of them spend most of their money not on booze and cigarettes, but on food and essential items like housing. About half of them admit, yes, from time to time, they'll spend it on drugs and alcohol, but they spend most of their money on basic needs. In, about, in America, about 80% of them are homeless, but 97% of them want, desire, yearn for permanent housing. And this is an alarming statistic. About a fourth of them have served their country faithfully and are veterans on the street corners begging. 
mostly men, about 80% in the communities. You see, we find excuses for not giving to them. They should find a job, we say. And I know that there is some biblical basis for that. We said last week in our talk about God's garden and work and responsibility, if anyone is not willing to work, then they also should not eat. I understand that. In 1 Thessalonians, remember, he tells those in Thessalonica, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work. Work with your own hands, just as we commanded you. Here's the problem, though, friends. We don't know the situation of that person on the street corner. Sometimes we look at them with a blind kind of judgmentalism and we stereotype them. We don't know whether they're employable or not. We don't know if they're handicapped or not unless it is obviously visible. We don't know if they have been suffering with mental problems. There's another reason. Sometimes we say, well, it's a scam. You see, they're, they're just dishonest. It's a ripoff. They're just working the system. Once again, there could be a biblical basis for that. Last week from Ephesians, we, we said Paul puts it in the context that sometimes those that don't work are actually stealing from others. He who steals, steal no longer, he said, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands that which is good, so that he'll have something to share with others. I, and I get it. We should work when we're capable of doing so. But the fact of the matter is, friends, when a person's on a street corner and desperately poor, they may feel like they have no other way to survive. Sometimes we say, well, all they're going to do is they're going to spend it on alcohol and drugs. We've already seen from the survey that most of them spend most of their money on basic essentials. Sometimes we say, well, you know, they make more money at this. Look how nicely dressed they are, and they look clean and neat, and we are critical of them for taking care of themselves sometimes, and we get the idea that they make more doing that than they do at honest work. Well, folks, there's nothing dishonest about it in most cities, and frankly, it's none of our business how a person makes their living. Most of them are making barely enough to survive and to eat and have shelter. Sometimes we say, well, they're not really homeless. They're not really in need, and that is true. Many of them have a home, but they don't have enough money to pay the rent. And they're all jobless for whatever reason. And then sometimes we quote Jesus from Mark 14. Well, the poor, you'll always have them among you, but we take it out of context. You see, what he was saying there is, there should be no excuse that you put before me, no excuse whatsoever from following me. You should follow me first. It was in that context. You know, she had just pay, poured out the ointment on his, on his feet, and, and Mary was showing her devotion to Jesus, and he was saying, that is a precious thing. That's a valuable thing. She's done the good thing. You'll always have the poor with you. But he wasn't saying that as an excuse to dismiss it. No, he also said, you serve me by serving the poor. And, and in the Old Testament, when it said, you will not have the, the needy among you, at the same time it said, but you know that's going to happen, and you must always take care of them. So let me close with some guidelines, I think, related to this. When we see somebody on the corner begging, how do you respond? 
I think you need to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that we should have a cookie-cutter solution in our mind. You know, I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to do that. Because, friends, that leads to an attitude of legalism and closed-fistedness. You need to have some guidelines in your mind, I think. You need to know what you got in your pocket, of course. But you need, at each instance, at each one of the corners when you pass them and they're begging, to let the Spirit tell you what to do. The final determination is up to God, not to us. You know, Paul tells the Corinthians, now he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. But he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly but or under compulsion, for God loves a what? Cheerful giver. And you might say, but wait a minute, he was talking about giving in the church. Yes, he was. But I will remind you, when he was speaking to the Corinthians, he was talking about taking a collection, an offering, for the relief of whom? Of the poor. Of the poor in Jerusalem. I think, secondly, we need to be aware of the law. Is it legal in your city or town for them to beg and for you to give? Some cities have outlawed it completely. In Fort Worth, there is an ordinance against aggressive panhandling. And in 36 of the largest 50 cities in America, begging is a criminal offense. Be aware of the law. Thirdly, stay safe. Don't let yourself, especially if you're in a car, become vulnerable, exposed, or in danger. Watch the traffic behind you. Don't expose them to danger. And I'm going to say this, never give a ride, especially if you're a woman. I'd say fourth, have a plan. It might not be a bad idea to buy some meal cards and carry them in your car. Have a little hygiene pack with a little baggie, maybe with with a little uh, towel in it, maybe some water. Some bottled water in your car, maybe some small bills that are readily accessible but never show your cash. I would say fifthly, be kind, be generous. You know, we have a responsibility to affirm their dignity. You know what I'm talking about looking past them instead of at them, frowning at them in a judgmental way. We ought to smile and acknowledge that they're human beings as we are. You see, a generous spirit costs nothing. When you're counting the pennies that you're pinching, you may smile and at least acknowledge them and maybe maybe even roll down the window and say, God loves you. May God bless you. You know, George Truett's motto was, be kind to everyone that you meet because everybody's having a hard time. Of course, that was in the Depression, but that's a good principle. I think sixthly, give unconditionally. When God does convict you through his spirit in that instance to give, and you know what I'm talking about. Often you pass by and you don't feel a pang at all, and that's fine because, you know, folks, we can't give to every person on every corner. We don't have enough money to do that. And I understand it. But there's sometimes where overwhelmingly you know the Holy Spirit is saying, you need to stop and do it. And sometimes I know some of you have passed a person on the corner and you've been convicted and you did a U-turn and you came back and you gave to them. Give unconditionally, though, you know, without asking, what are they going to do with it? You see, that's none of our business. It's between them and God. Don't do it for show. Don't do it because you feel good about yourself. The Scripture says, don't let your what? right hand know what your left hand is doing. One day I was driving down the street access road to 820. There was a fellow with a cardboard sign and I knew I had a $20 bill in my pocket and a $5 bill in my pocket. But I couldn't 
look at what I had, what I was pulling out. But I knew where they were. And it was one of those few moments where the Lord said, you need to give this person something. And I reached down in there, and I took the $5 bill out, and I gave it to him, and I drove on, you know. And I got home, and you know what happened. My left hand pulled out, put it in my right hand, and it was the $5 bill. I done what? I gave him $20. Wow. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You see, the Lord knew that that person needed that $20 a lot more than I did. Remember this, our responsibility as stewards in God's garden, and that has to do with work. We're stewards of all of his resources, and he calls us to be responsible for all creatures. Your dog, your cat, your pet calls us to be responsibly conservative in our society. It causes us to be part of the environmental uh, protection. I get it. It also calls us to take care of our fellow human beings. You see, this is his garden, not ours. It's his garden. But it's also not somebody else's garden to take advantage of anybody. It's also not somebody else's garden. It's not a common garden where it is equality for all. It's not everybody else's garden so that we're required to redistribute wealth and level everybody down to the same standard of existence. No, it's his garden, and he gives you a plot to farm. And he expects you to work it industriously. And then what he asks you to do is from the profit of that to share with those that have less. It's sort of like the English allotment system. In England, there are plots of common ground that they are part of the community, and you can sign up for an allotment. It, it's usually based on a seniority system and a numbering system. And there are a certain number of people in the community that, that have allotments, and they get to work the land, and they get to produce crops. It's like a vegetable garden, and they work it very hard. But not everybody has an allotment, you see, because there's not enough land. And it's sort of like that. We're to work our portion, our allotment. And then when we finished, when the Lord has blessed us with that bounty, he expects us to share just a little bit from the gleaning of the fields with those that don't have an allotment. Next to last, I would say be grateful. Be grateful and don't be condescending and don't be paternalistic. What I mean by that is we need to be humble. We need to be reminded every day that we draw breath that we are very fortunate in this country. We live in a land of bounty beyond measure, and we need to be humble about that. We also need to be humble when we see somebody poor and begging on the street corner, and I hesitate to say it this way, but it's true. There, but for the grace of God. Go I. We need to be humble. We need to be thankful for God's provision of work and his providential care. We need to be thankful that God has given us jobs to support our families and ourselves and to share with others. And we need to be grateful for the privilege of being in a position to help others. And finally, we need to put it into perspective. Put all this in perspective. Remember what we said last week about work. There's some reasons that God has called us to work. God blesses us with the opportunity for, to work for, for specific reasons. And those specific reasons, those purposes that I mentioned at the end of last week's sermons are the very reasons that he calls us to help others when they're begging and needing. 
Remember, one of the reasons is our responsibility. Our responsibility ultimately in all of this is to do what? Our, our ambition is to please God. And we please God when we share with others. Secondly, work is a privilege. It's a privilege to follow God's example and to come alongside him in the harvest field and to work alongside him, and it's a privilege to help others. A fourth reason was dignity. He creates us in the image of God, and we can mirror his image to others. And when we do so, when we give to those that are in need, we need to affirm their dignity. Next to last, we work because we can provide for our family and for ourselves. And that's a reason to give to the poor because when our families are safe, when we have enough, he calls us then to help and to share with others. And finally, one of the reasons that God enables us to work, the scripture says, he tells, Paul tells the Ephesians, is so that you might have the opportunity to share with others, with those that are in need. You know, this is what God's done with us. This is what God's done with us. God so loved the world that he what? He didn't just send his only son. He gave his only begotten son. He gave him up and he died a sinner's death so that he might redeem us from sin and death, from the bounty of God's grace. And we walk in the unharvested edges of God's kingdom, and he blesses us, and he allows us, no, not just to gather from the edges, but he pulls out of the center of the bushel, and he gives us the very best of what he has, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You see, he went beyond the law. He be, went beyond what anyone would ever expected so that we might, poor and needy beggars, beggars that have not the living bread, beggars that have not the living water, he gave so that we might have life. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Wow. Jesus, my Redeemer, name above all names, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, oh, for sinners slain. It closes this way, and think about this as we sing it. Thank you. Thank you, oh, my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. And he calls us into that community of believers where we participate with the Spirit of God to continue working here until our work is done. We have a responsibility to those who are poor and needy as a church, but also you do too. But the most important responsibility is to share what? Living bread and living water. The name of Jesus Christ that is above all names who died to redeem them from sin and death. Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit 
Ambrose Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.